Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Let me read for you uh, Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses together. Paul writes to this, what I call the All Smiles Church, this church that's brought him great enjoyment. He says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that says a lot. It's a wonderful uh, statement of faith. By the way, Philippians chapter 2 is used uh, in a number of uh, great Christian creeds that churches all around the world, even this morning, will be reciting. But I would like for you to focus on one word, and that's why you need a common translation. It's kind of the bullseye of this text. It summarizes all this great theology that we just read. It's found in verse 5. You might even circle it. I've made a bullseye in my Bible around it because everything before and after centers on this one word, and that word is attitude. Attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as we'll see in just a moment, notice that everything above that verse, verses 1 through 4, focuses on our attitude. And everything that comes after that verse, verses 6 through 11, focuses on the modeling of Jesus' attitude, and it all meets right there in verse 5 in the one word attitude. So what is an attitude? It's a good question if that's the whole focus of this passage. Well, I like that word attitude. It's a term that is currently in vogue among a lot of our youth. I hear them all the time say, boy, Betty has got an attitude. Or boy, does he need an attitude. And uh, I want you to know the word attitude was chic in the first century as well, as you see right here in this passage. But when kids talk about somebody having an attitude, I often think that they're speaking more about a particular mood their friend is in. But the word attitude is not talking about mood so much as it's talking about a mindset, something that's fixed, uh, that's really a strong disposition of their whole nature. It's an ongoing way of life more than an occasional mood swing so to speak. A dictionary definition is helpful at this point. It defines attitude as a manner of acting, feeling, thinking in a way that reveals one's disposition or mental set. 
Did you hear that? Our mental set. A mental set is something that your mind is set on. It's, it's got a more solid ring to it than just a, 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 pass, a passing mood that's, that's going through. It's a prevailing, if you will, mindset of a person. And we all have that. It'd be interesting sometime to get a good friend, by the way, and just say, when you look at me my whole life, what is the prevailing attitude that you see in me? <laughs> a good question. Because it is prevailing. It colors and shapes how we see things, how we feel about things, how we interact with everyone. It doesn't matter about our intelligence. It doesn't matter about the things that we have at the core, at the headwaters of who we are, is an attitude. And that's why this text is so critically important for each one of us. Someone has said that we do not see things as they are as much as we see things as we are. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. So much of what's around us, one man sees one way and another man sees it another way and the difference is not the things as they are, but as these men are. And what may be to one man an exciting opportunity because of who he is and his attitude may be a total discouragement to another based on who he is, his mental set. That's the key word. A.W. Tozer adds to this when he says, things are for us only what we hold them to be. Which is to say that our attitude towards things is likely in the long run to be more important than the very things themselves. In other words, the most important thing about you here this morning is your attitude. Jesus' first sermon was not on what we need to know. Jesus' first words were not on what we need to do or how we need to feel. His first message was put on those things that are what we are, and we call His message the Beatitudes. They're at the core of who we are. That color and shape and flavor, everything we think, see, and feel. You know, this morning when I walked in, I was greeted by some of the stepmen and women those kids from the inner city, and I thought to myself, you know, it's going to be attitude. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be their attitude. There is no economic liability or hardship that has ever been able to stand up to attitude. When I see the graduates on the stage full of all this potential and richness and about to be launched out of here, and there's a lot of feeling that goes on with that moment, you know what I sat there and thought? Attitude. It's going to be their attitude. It has nothing to do in many ways with their aptitude, but their attitude. As any of us who have been worn a little by life can testify when we've shown up at our 25th high school reunion, right? I mean, we remember Johnny and Bill and Sally and Carolyn and all them, and we come back 25 years later remembering what they were, and we found out that all the wealth and all the intelligence that they had didn't have near the impact as their prevailing mindset, their attitude, and it shows on them. Some of them are radiant because of it. Some of them are worn out because of it. It's attitude. An attitude is more than a mood. It's a mindset, a mindset that prevails over life and shapes and colors everything you think, see, and feel. And this morning, we're going to talk about a special kind of attitude, not just any attitude, 
but a Christ-like attitude, the one that's described in these verses 1 through 11. So why don't you look there with me and let me start by talking about some, what I call on the outline, some attitude lifters that everyone, everyone that's in Christ can take advantage of. Read with me verse 1 again. He says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation, the word means comfort or exhortation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Let me stop right there. Sometimes when I used to read that when I was a young Christian, I thought, well, is Paul convinced of these things? He keeps using if. You know, if there is, if there is. It sounds like he's not fully convinced. Well, what you can't look on this page in English, a theologian who could read it in the original language could feel the emotion in this very first verse. And I want to bring it out for you before we move on here. This is what is linguistically called in Greek a first-class conditional phrase, which doesn't mean much to you, but it doesn't translate very well into English. So that's why you have it in the if kind of category. But the closest cousin that we could use in our English language would be something like this. If I came up to you and said, does Michael Jordan have a jump shot? Can Alan Mesko play the piano? Uh, does Rich Campbell sweat? <laughs> you would say, of course, why are you asking that as a question? But you see, each of these is asked like a question, but it's asked that way only to emotionally accentuate the answer, which is already obvious, right? That's right. Well, if you were to read this, if you could read this in an original language, that's exactly how it would feel. If there is any encouragement in Christ, it would be like saying, if there are any basketball fanatics in Arkansas, well, you'd say there are tons of them. That's exactly the emotion Paul wants to bring out. If there is any encouragement in Christ, well, of course there is. I mean, His forgiveness, His presence, not leaving us alone, giving us a hope and a future, meeting us where we are, not giving up on us, staying with us until the very end, not abandoning us to ourselves, being able to offer us richness and power. If there is any encouragement in Christ, of course there is. If there's any comfort in love. Boy, have you ever felt alone? really alone, and in that moment have experienced the love of God. That's what he's talking about, the comfort of the love of God. Many times you may be in here, and you're dealing with a particular issue, and because of the text or the music or whatever, in that moment there's kind of this intervention of the Spirit in your life, and you feel the comfort of the living God. Is there an encouragement in that? That's what he's talking about. The point is, of course there is. And that's why Paul is playing the same kind of linguistic game. He's offering something that, that is in an if kind of category, but is so absurd that the reader would go, of course there is. And if there is encouragement in these things, then let me just kind of paraphrase how that moves into verse 2. What he's saying, then let these things shape and impact your personal attitude. And then in verse 2 he says, and then make my joy complete by letting your Christ-filled attitude, as you draw on those strengths, then affect the way you reason with, love, and interact with one another by having the same mind and the same purpose. You see, when you have that attitude and you're drawing from those resources and you're over here trying to shape yourself around those assets that have been provided for us in Christ, as more and more people do that, Man, they come together in one mind and one spirit and one purpose. That's what he's saying. Make my joy complete and do that thing. Some of you are here this morning and you've messed up. 
you've really messed up. This last week, <laughs> you've messed up. But no matter how bad you messed up or how frequently you messed up, there's always forgiveness in Christ. So as verse 1 says, be encouraged. There's encouragement in Christ. Some of you may feel all alone. Maybe you're a widow. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you feel friendless. Maybe you're single. What verse 1 tells us is receive the love of God. Be comforted. Maybe you're dealing with a life-changing decision and you're thinking, how am I going to decide what to do in this momentous moment of my life? Fellowship, it says, with the Spirit. Pray, meditate, think on these things, and you'll get your answer. So be filled, the Scripture says, with the Spirit and fellowship with the Spirit of God. That's what he's talking about here. And by taking advantage of these resources, we then cultivate something bigger than ourselves. We cultivate a Christ-like attitude which in time will have a great impact on how I interact with you and how you interact with me. That's what he's saying. See, he wants this church to fill his cup of joy completely full. They're making him happy, but he wants to be absolutely joyous. And I want you to know, there is an incredible compounding. Some of you know that because of interest. There's an incredible compounding effect that takes place when a church is filled with a high percentage of people who are trying to take on a Christ-like attitude. It's incredible. One can walk into a church like that and they can feel the difference. There's, a, there's kind of a spiritual energy in the building. There's a spiritual passion, so to speak, which kind of emerges when all those people start getting together. I wish you had the privilege, like I do, because Bill mentioned the discovery class, for those of you who are new here, but I always attend the last discovery class, the discovery one class, before uh, people finish that, uh, that kind of social engagement. And we'll go around and we'll talk about what brought them to fellowship and how they got here. And I hear this story over and over again. They'll say, when I walked into this building, I knew something was different here. Now, how can you do that? When you walk into a room and something feels different, there's, a, there's an energy. That's that compounding effect of people who are encouraged in Christ. They feel loved. They feel a certain energizing of the Spirit. They have a common language and they come together and that's what you're feeling. On the other hand, you can walk into a church who has none of those things. They're not really drawing radically off the Scripture. They're not joined in a unity of one Spirit and it just feels like an event. Let's just get through it and get out of here. And that's what we're talking about here. He wants this church to be a pace setter for all the churches in Europe since they're the very first. And Paul says in verse 2, having you Philippians coming together in that kind of spiritual energy, that would make my joy absolutely complete. It couldn't get any better than that. And that's what needs to take place. I want you to know that he moves on though to verses 3 and 4. And unfortunately, what we find in those verses are what I call some attitude spoilers that can short circuit this extremely healthy process that I just outlined for you. Look at verse Three, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now I want you to know, this week I stopped right there several times and I went, Man, that's not easy. Well, it gets harder. Look at verse 4. And do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. I went, I don't know if I got the time to do that. <laughs> you know? That's kind of how it feels. You know, you could take the first half of verse 3 and the first half of verse 4 and put that on a slide, and that's the American culture. That's us. 
Everybody running around, selfish and empty, looking out for number one, period. They got an attitude problem. And what Paul is saying here is, no, I want you to have an attitude, real attitude. Let's look at the first one. He says, do nothing, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. By the way, these words, selfishness and empty conceit, they go together. They're kind of like a couple. And they, they speak of a mindset. In fact, if you want a good definition, you can just write in your notes. They speak of this, me first. Me first. Don't have me first, he says in verse 3. You need to regard others as more important. You know, if you go up to Canacut Camp, they have an award they give there called the I Am Third Award. It's a great award. But that's what Paul's saying here. There's a problem. It's me first. And you don't have to work at this problem. It just comes to you naturally. Now, you see that in your kids, don't you? If you have children, it just comes natural to you. Uh, you know, it's, it's an agonizing experience for me that every time we go to the car, 995,000 times we go to the car, and there are four kids racing, and they're hitting each other, and they're screaming, they're saying, I got the front seat! And then one of the little kids will get his hand you know, on the door handle and they'll be pounding and beating him. Blood will be going everywhere. Get away, I got that front seat. You're going, good grief. Those are my kids. <laughs> I got the pizza. Give me the pizza. I got the, I'm going to eat first. You know, I get the bat first. I'm the first in line. Who'd like to go to Disney? Me, me, me. And you hear just me. It's just there. Me first. It's in all of us, isn't it? Boy, you wish it would go away. Like kind of like at puberty, it just disappeared. Something else would emerge. The only problem is that puberty, it doesn't go away. But it gets a lot slicker. <laughs> gets a lot more sophisticated and professional looking. Me first. Notice there's a second defiler in verse 4. Do not merely... Gosh, doesn't that word just kind of... It just kind of rolls out of your mouth. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. You know what that's saying? It's not me first. That's even worse. That's me only. Merely for your own personal interest. Nobody else. Got too much to do. Got to run too hard. My schedule's too packed. And so you interact with people almost as objects, and it's just me only. There's no time tithed to others and their interest. In fact, our culture has gotten to such a state that when you see somebody look out for your own interest, when their vision is not so constricted, that that's really what he's talking about, but it's a broader vision where he can feel with you. Gosh, you're like, it's just kind of like a refreshing moment. Craig and I, uh, Craig Cheney and I go to the Waffle House on Fridays a lot, and we sit in there and talk shop and and uh, the other morning, we've been in there many mornings when it's packed with people and you sit down and wait for your booth to be called and all that kind of thing. And uh, sometimes you'll walk in. In fact, I've done this myself where I've walked in and gotten a booth, a whole booth, and just sat there and read the paper and had a cup of coffee and people have waited till I finished, you know. And uh, so we walked in and this really caught my eye. We walked in the day and we sat down and no sooner it was filled, no sooner we sat down than a gentleman who had a whole booth to himself who I have no idea who he was, he just looked down there and he noticed us. And he said, hey, let me get out of the booth. You guys come in, you, you know, you're, you need a booth. Why don't you sit down and I'll go down and sit at the crowded counter. And that just struck me as odd. Because here's a guy who, he's reading his paper, drinking his coffee like me. 
But his vision is bigger, broader. He senses people around him and their needs and what they're feeling. And he kind of put that all together and graciously stepped out of the way and said, hey, let me think of your interest for a moment. And it was so fresh. Where is your vision? Is there room for others in your vision? You ever think about, when you, when you listen to your language, is your language filled with me, myself? When you think of your goals, is your goals so crowded, so many things to get done, that there's no room to even consider others? That's what he's talking about here. It's not just me first, it's me only. And we both all know here that both those things are deeply ingrained within us, don't we? You say, well, man, how do you fight these insidious defilers? And I think at this point, Paul brings up on the stage all along Jesus. See there in verse 5? After he said this, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. He says, now let me just show you Jesus. That's the only way you're going to escape these insidious defilers is through the person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know before we look at these verses, he's not just a model, though he'll be modeled here for us, but he's also a mentor of this attitude we need to have. It's got maker on your outline. You might scratch that and just put mentor. He's a living mentor. Verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And we know from the verses that follow that everything in the life of Jesus Christ exemplified this high and holy attitude, which, by the way, is not outside your reach. So don't discount it too quickly. Notice how he modeled it in heaven. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, although he existed in the form of God, now we're in eternity. And here he is in eternity, existing as the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. See the words, he emptied himself? Boy, theologians have tried to plumb the depths of that one little phrase. What did he do when he emptied himself? Theologians debate that all the time, by the way, in theological circles, but we're not going to get lost in those deep waters because there's just a simple, shallow path we can take. There's some things that are very clear that nobody debates. And first of all, we know that Jesus did not cease to be God when He emptied Himself and became a man. He was the man God. So what did He empty Himself of? Well, what seems clear from verse 6 is that Jesus gave up His rights, His exaltation, and His benefits of being the second member of the Godhead. In other words, He divested Himself of all the insignias that would, that would demonstrate or that He could enjoy of His glory. He gave all those things up. He didn't hold on to those things. And here's God the Father trying to pry Him loose of the pole of heaven and throw Him down to earth. You know, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. No, that's not what happened. It said he did not regard his equality as co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as a thing that he needed to grasp onto. He could just let go. And he could take a long jump down into a smelly stable in Bethlehem. Why? Why? I can tell you why. Because Jesus had an attitude. That's why. And you notice the very people he was jumping down to be with are the very people who didn't want to be with Him. They had spurned Him. They had rejected Him. And they wanted nothing to do with Him. And that includes you and me. 
He also modeled this attitude not only in heaven, but he modeled it on earth. Look at verse 8. It says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says he not only emptied himself, he humbled himself. And verse 8 kind of tells us three, kind of hints at three critical moments in Jesus' history, his life on earth, where he humbled himself. The first is, notice it says in verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man. I think that really is, you could almost say, in the appearance as a child. His first appearance was not as a grown man, but it was as a little child in Bethlehem. Boy, what would that moment have felt like? Kind of like, you know, what's the uh, TV show where the guy, you know, turns into light and shows up somewhere? That's kind of, yeah, quantum leap. It's kind of like, here's a quantum leap. Suddenly in one moment, with all the insignias of glory around him, the next moment, he's just a child. That was one critical moment in the life of Jesus on earth. A second critical moment came when he was 30 years old, when he submitted to God's call in his life to serve others. That's what it means by being obedient. That's what's hinted at. A lot of people don't realize this, but when Jesus Christ came to earth, the first 30 years of his life, he wasn't disobedient to his father, but he wasn't under the call of his father. There's a difference there. And I think it's real unique that God called Jesus at 30 the reason that's unique to me, because I've studied a lot about men recently, as you know, and a lot of sociologists will tell you that between 28 and 32, a man starts going through a need to get out on his own. Maybe he's worked in a clinic or uh, in a business where he's underneath uh, a president, but he's got, he feels like he's got some of the same skills that the president has. Or maybe he's in a partnership with some guys and he's just now feeling, I need to flap my own wings. I can do this by myself. But you'll see a lot of young men move out of a safe and secure environment and go out on their own between 28 and 32. They'll just do it. Take the leap. They've got to get out. And here Jesus is right at that prime moment when he wants to get out on his own and his father comes to him and says, have I got a job for you? And I want you to submit. How did he do that? How did he stop at that point with all the things he could have done, with all the feelings of a real man, and submit to a very specific plan that had nothing to do so much with him as it did, as it would have with others in mind. Because Jesus had an attitude. Then I want you to notice lastly, it says, even to the point of death. This brings us to the garden. And here was another place where Jesus realized that he had to die to accomplish this call for others. Not my will, he said, as he sweated great drops of blood, but thine be done. Now, I mention these three critical moments of humility in Jesus' life because they're really important for us. Because we need to recognize that they mirror, for every man and woman in this room, three critical moments of humility in your life and mine. If we're going to come to a place where we have Jesus' attitude, if we can accomplish verse 5. For instance... First, we must empty ourselves. Now, I hope most of us have done this here, but I want you to recall that. You must come to a place, every man or woman must come to a place where you empty yourselves of your pride and your rights and your excuses for you to become a child. Except in this case, it's a child of God. You must be born again. You know, there's a big leap 
There's a quantum leap in a moment when a man quits telling himself how good he is and quits defending all the good works he has and that he's religious and all those things and realizes he's bankrupt before Jesus Christ, before the God of heaven. He has nothing to offer and he's lost. That takes a big step of humility. And that his plans are worthless. You know, this week I had lunch with a guy and we were sitting there at this table and here he is 50 years old and and, and he looked at me and he said, and I, I just so appreciated his transparency here. He looked at me and he said, you know, it's a humbling thing to be 50 years old and to say, I don't know God, but I don't. It's a humbling thing to know that I grew up in the church and I've been through a number of marriages and here I am. I'm sitting here with a preacher and I'm telling him, I don't know God, but I don't. But I want him to know that that was an extremely important moment. It's a moment every man or woman has to get to if they're ever really going to taste of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said in His first statement, the first words of His public ministry were, happy are those who are impoverished inside, for they will see the kingdom of heaven. You've got to come to an end of yourself. But then there's a second critical moment, just like in the life of Jesus Christ. And that second critical moment of humility is a time when after being in Christ, you come to a place where you've kind of been doing your own thing, but you have to come to a place and submit to God's call on your life to serve others. And that's a call that for some is still being issued. See, a lot of us can go and we can enjoy the privileges after becoming a Christian, and we take and we take and we take. Boy, that's an empty life. It's a real empty life. Some of us will hit these points to serve others and to be drawn to a broader interest of others just by the natural process of life. For instance, getting married. All of a sudden, me first and me only doesn't work in marriage. Have you found that out? It just doesn't work. And you have to kind of be pulled away, that constricted vision of, hey, I want to sit here and read the paper. It doesn't work anymore, you know, because somebody's trying to say, hey, look at me. And if that isn't bad enough, God will bring kids along, you know? And kids are constantly trying to pull your vision bigger than it is in me first and me only. And that leads us to this third point of humility. In order to accomplish this call to serve others, we must die. We must die. Not on a cross, but we must die to me first and me only if we're really going to have this kind of attitude that was in Christ Jesus. There's probably no place in Scripture that Paul more eloquently and clearly states what I'm saying right now than in another epistle, just two books back, the epistle to the Galatians. You might turn back to Galatians chapter 2 just for a moment and read that statement with me because if there's, there's a verse to sum up what I'm saying, it's here. But I want you to know, these three steps are going to be the three steps to you finding fullness in the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to think clearly about your life. Do I feel good about those three steps? Would they be true in my life? Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's how Paul says it. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Here's the apostle. That's why he can open up a little letter in Philippians with Paul and Timothy, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Here's a guy that had all these theological credentials. He's got all this rich racial background. He's got all these academic assets. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, I count them all as dung. Dung. 
for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. Boy, it takes an attitude to get to that place. And he says, here's why. Because I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, me first, me only. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I mean, sometimes it's hard, but I live it by faith, not by sight, in the Son of God who loved me. Is there any encouragement in love? Yes. Who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I want you to look there at Galatians 2.20, because remember I said Christ is not only our attitude, uh, attitude model, but He's our attitude mentor. I want you to underline a little phrase there. Christ lives in me, it says. See, He's alive. He lives in me. Galatians says Christ is a living mentor inside us who is urging us and empowering us to live and to die for other people. That's the way to get an attitude. And sometimes His powerful presence will be felt in big things if you give Him the opportunity. If you come to a place where you've become a child, a child of the kingdom, where you've come to a place where I want to serve others and you submit and you feel His call in specific ministries or in, in relationship to general areas of life, but, but, but you're wanting to serve others and your vision is getting broader and now you're having to die to yourself at certain places, but it's not an unhealthy death and it's not necessarily a terribly painful death, but it's a necessary one. And so you get in these big moments and maybe you've got a job promotion and that job promotion really strokes your ego. It feels good. There's only one catch. You've got to travel five nights a week. And so you've got a decision to make as you come before your king who's living in you and trying to make that decision. Sometimes after we've tried and tried and tried to make life work, everything around us says it's not working. And maybe the powerful presence of the living God says, hey, I want to help you. You just need to admit, you've got a problem. You can't do it alone. And you're never going to get to where you're going to achieve what you want to do for the kingdom until you deal with this bigger issue. That takes humility to die at that point. It's not just in the big things, though. I want you to know, uh, most of the great satisfactions of life are not going to be these, what I call, maxi deaths to self, but they're many deaths to self. They're little things that occur from day to day in, in our lives. Uh, this last week, we were at Baskin-Robbins as a family, and my last son, Mason, who's seven years old, he's had this front tooth that's been loose, and all his other friends' teeth are falling out, and he feels like he's getting behind. So he said, Dad, can you pull my front tooth? And we're at Baskin-Robbins, and sure enough, it is pretty loose, so I just pop it out of there. And of course, blood starts coming out, and he's just grinning with blood running down his chin. And when I pulled that one out, the other one just was hanging, so I just went ahead and pulled it out, too. So he's going around showing everybody. It looks like Dad has beat him up, but there's blood coming out, and there's just a big hole in his face, you know, from all these missing teeth. And he was so excited when he went to bed that night, you know, because, man, the tooth fairy, two teeth, you know. And, uh, of course, I have this kind of running joke with my kids about the tooth fairy. I always tell them that enamel prices on the world market are way down. And so they'll get a dime or a quarter. But I thought, hey, it's my last child. And it's the last two front teeth I'll ever pull. So I put $2 under there. And uh, I got up early the next morning. And I uh, hadn't, hadn't been able to sleep in in a long time. But in this particular morning, I thought, hey, this is going to be for me. I woke up early, went out and got the paper. And was laying in bed, doing something I hadn't done for a while, reading the paper. Well, Mason, Mr. Bright Eyes, you know, he wakes up early that particular morning. First thing he does is reach under the pillow, finds two $1 bills. He comes running in there and jumps into bed with me. And he said, look, I got $2, you know, and he wants to talk about it. And so I said, well, man, that's great, Mason, all that, but Dad's reading the paper. 
And so I just kind of, it was bothering me. You know, he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to go through the whole experience. But I wanted to read the sports. So I was sitting there reading the sports. I said, that's, that's nice, son. And it's just, this is the way it happens. You're sitting there reading the paper, and you can just kind of feel. You're, you know, you're kind of feeling this, this growing perspective that there's somebody here that needs you. And he's just kind of sitting there looking at his dad. And I suddenly realized, you know, it's not right. But I realized, you know, this is the presence of Christ here who's making, kind of making a, a, a statement to me to regard someone, in this case, a little seven-year-old boy, as more important than the paper. Now, I know you all identify, a lot of you dads, with that. That's a little thing, but it's a big thing for him. Because you can always read the paper, but, you know, you can only snuggle once with a little boy with $2 for his only front teeth. You can only do that one time. And when you start setting those moments into place as the living God broadens your perspective to think of someone bigger than you and a cause bigger than you, you don't lose out on life. You get life. That is life. All the trinkets and toys and money at the end mean nothing and we know it. We keep being reminded of it. But how do you get there? Because me first and me only are so powerful. You get there by dying and by having Christ live in me. Christ is not just our attitude model. He's our attitude giver. Remember that. You can't do it without Him. For the secular American, the creed is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But for the spiritual American, the creed is death, submission, and the pursuit of happiness. See, same ends. Just a different means to get to the end. When Jesus Christ came and submitted and relinquished and died for you and for me, it didn't end in humiliation for Him. Look at verse 9. It ended with exaltation. It says, Therefore God also highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And those who are in heaven, they'll bow. Those who are on earth, they'll bow. Those who are in hell, they'll bow. They'll all bow. Because the name was so powerful and so awesome, He highly exalted Him. There was a glorious finish to this attitude. And we need to remember, it's the same with us. Being humble, thinking about others, reaching out, moving into areas that aren't natural for us. They end, not with being left out, but they end in an exaltation, a special, satisfactory exaltation of a lifetime and for eternity. That's why we need to follow His example. But we also need to draw upon His living presence. Now, let me give you a way you can practice that real simply. This is for individuals or for family. I call it an attitude check. It's really an application. But I thought, you know, how could we as a body, maybe just for a month, practice what I think is so important? Because where in our society do you find anybody saying, hey, let's practice thinking of others? Let's practice that. So here's a little project you might try in your family or for yourself with some friends even. And that is this. First of all, you might just memorize word for word Philippians 2, 3 through 5, those three verses. They're very simple. It'll take you maybe a little while. As we get a little older, it takes a little longer. But you might just memorize that. You know, somewhere everyone here has got to learn you can't make it well in the Christian life just coming to church, just getting re-energized once a week. 
until you start putting the Word of God in you and asking God to live in you, it doesn't work. It just will never work. So let's start kind of as a congregation. Maybe get dads, get your family together. Say, hey, we're going to memorize these three verses. Memorize them. But then after you've got them, everybody's got it, then find some popular place in your house or in your car or wherever and just put a card up. Just tape it up that says, Attitude Check, Philippians 2, 3 through 5. And what everybody does is for a month, when they see that card, they commit to do two things. One, they commit to bow and pray and ask Jesus Christ to live in them. And then they ask Him to make this verse a reality in their life. And here's what I'm going to guarantee you. If you will do that, He will move in your life. If you will do that, you will feel at some point in that month His living presence saying, get out of yourself. Look around. There are needs here. There are issues. Give, and it'll be given to you. And then come back together at the end of the month and share your experiences. Men, women, that is the best way I know how to teach you to practice the presence of God in your life. It's a great attitude check. You know, next week, as many of you know, we'll be making a major vision presentation to the church. And I hope it's, I know it's Memorial Day, but uh, I hope many of you will be able to be here with us during that time where we share some really exciting things. Probably, probably this will be one of the most defining moments in the history of our church as we share with you some changes that are going to be taking place. It's going to be very informative and exciting. But I want you to know, know this. As exciting and as excited as I am about sharing that vision, that big vision with you, I'm more excited this morning about this vision. This right here. Because that vision next week pales in comparison to what I have just told you about. Really. We can have impressive buildings, innovative ministries, and all kinds of decent folk who go here. You can be decent and not godly. But that's not what Paul is calling for. He's calling for a model New Testament church where people compound their excitement and their energy because they have an attitude. God, help us to be a people who are alive in Christ. God, help us to be a church with an attitude. Let's pray. Father, once again, we have come to a text that goes deep into our heart. It is so against the grain of the world in which we live. And yet it promises an unbelievable fruitfulness for those who by faith will get out of themselves not think that there is this place out there where they can retire and focus on themselves, which is the way of death, but that they could die to themselves and focus on You, which is the way of life. Lord, You offer that to us as an example. You offer all kinds of assets to us to take advantage of, to achieve what You've asked us to do. And You've also warned us of those things who would rob us from having an attitude like Jesus Christ how I would pray for each member of our church that they would see the very special place that they have here this morning in giving their heart to You. And as they do that, that becomes a movement in and of itself. And when joined to others, it becomes an army that has an incredible impact, not only in each person's life, but on others' lives, people who are not even here this morning. Just like Ann shared when people stood had there not been somebody thinking of me rather than themselves, 
I wouldn't be here. And how I praise you for those whose mindset is much bigger than their own life, but they really do think about other people. Help us to be that kind of person, to step into that kind of glory, the kingdom of heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.